Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesday each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province, and information on their own trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. Healy was born and raised in Dauphin, Manitoba on a typical prairie farm. Wheat and canola dominated the crop rotation with some barley, oats, and peas. A small herd of cows grazed the unfarmed acres. Michael's career trajectory was most likely farming, given his active involvement in the family farm and his decision to study plant science in the Faculty of Agriculture at the University of Manitoba. In hindsight, not returning to the family farm after graduating university was a blessing for Michael. Instead, he began a 30-plus year journey to understand agriculture and the importance of soil, water, sunlight, plants, and animals, and the realization that all of the parts are interconnected, a concept critical to the long-term success of food production and the health of the biosphere. Over that time, Michael has worked with many conservation organizations focused on soil, water, and wildlife habitat in the context of prairie agriculture. Thank you so much for taking time to meet with me today, Michael. It's so great to have you on the show. On this episode, we're going to be talking about two different projects that you are involved with, the Ducks Unlimited Canada Grazing Club and the General Mills Pilot Program. Before we get into our chat about these, can you share a little bit about your history and background and what you're looking forward to in agriculture? Yeah, well, thanks, Chantel. Uh, Great to be here. And and it's, uh, yeah, cool that MBFI is doing this. Glad to be a, a small part. Yeah, so I grew up on a farm west of Dauphin, you know, just sort of typical farm boy and a you know, very conventional farm, uh, wheat, canola, peas, oats, a few cows running around, you know, season long grazing. So yeah, when you know, I was thinking about that yesterday and, and a kind of story came to mind. I remember when my dad started to grow yellow sweet clover and and we were actually harvesting it for seed, right? It wasn't green manure, we were harvesting it. And and I was kind of like confused by what what are we doing here? You know, none of the neighbors are doing this, but we had like a very poor piece of land. You know, so we farmed on the the north side of Ridley Mountain. And when the glacier laid down, you know, the soil types after, you know, 10,000 years ago, after the last ice age, 
the the half section we owned had about like nine soil types everything from almost like sand to gumbo so you know i'd be out there cultivating in the spring or whatever and i'd go from making dust to getting stuck and and we just got fed up with that and dad decided we're going to try to improve the soil like i've always been saying for a bunch of years now that we never really talked about soil my dad and i and that's probably mostly true but i was thinking yeah this this sweet clover story was interesting and so we did talk about soil we were trying to do something different and i wonder if those you know those sorts of things got me thinking about how we can do things maybe better and different just growing up and so that always kind of stuck with me and you know i mentioned riding mountain national park and that also kind of had an effect on me that i had this idea as a little guy that you know the park was where nature was that's where you know animals and all that were and but out here on the land where we're farming we don't have time for nature right you know we're busy doing the hard work of trying to grow food right and I think that was probably a dangerous um, mentality so you know those are sorts of the sorts of things that uh, maybe influenced me as a little guy and and then of course you know so now when I think about the future of agriculture and you know, I would say what am I looking forward to would be just deeper understanding. You know, we've been doing this thing called ag for 10,000 years or more. I was actually just looking at an article that the latest info from some research is that it's maybe more like 23 or 25,000 years ago. You know, we've been doing ag a long time and we've learned a great deal, but truth is we probably still have a lot to learn. And I get the sense that maybe now we finally have enough understanding enough knowledge of about you know the whole not just about chemistry you know the green revolution was all about chemistry fertilizer chemicals herbicides fungicides and, and those are all super powerful tools that you know can be very useful but they do have consequences when used irresponsibly so i think now we can kind of make this leap i think where we start to work with nature instead of perhaps fighting against it and to understand that that eggs this complex system and all that really means is it's got a whole bunch of parts and those parts work together to kind of form the whole and when you try to maximize a single variable in that complex system like for example yield you know we're sort of focused on yield Mm -hmm. and when you focus on a single variable chances are it has negative consequences to other parts of that system so that's that's where i think we're at and you know to me that's that's pretty exciting. So I feel good about that. I'm optimistic about the future of agriculture. That's good. Did you have like an aha moment when you realized that the wildlife and the farm animals and the farmland all needed to be cohesive? Yeah, I did. You know, one of the, the real aha moments I have was as part of the, the work with the grazing clubs, I, we went down to Bismarck for a number of soil health workshops. They used to have, hold a big winter workshop and, and, and some summer tours. And we were down there at the Minokin farm and, and visiting Gabe Brown's farm. And, and that was when cover crops were first just kind of being whispered about and this whole idea of diversity. And, and they had this little experiment, Jay Fuhr, the, the manager of the, the farm and, they started with a single like monoculture it was radish and then they added um, turnips another brassica and 
it was a super dry year, drought, summer, hot, you know, July, we're down there just suffering in this field, looking at what's going on. And, and uh, the brassicas are just completely burned off the drought got them and, and what the drought didn't, the flea beetles did, right? So they were just decimated. But then as they started to add diversity going down this field in about five acre chunks, so it was big, you know, it wasn't like plot work. This is like field scale doing real agriculture. They started adding diversity, like cereals, they added oats, they added yellow sweet clover. They till at the other end of the field, you know, not a half mile away, you had eight species mix. And it was green and growing and the flea beetles hadn't totally decimated the brassicas. And I'm looking at this with Jay Fuhr asking him, like, what's going on here? Um, it's green. Like, did you irrigate it? Did you spray it for flea beetles? Like, what's, you know, just sort of typical conventional thinking. And he looked at me and he goes, Mike, uh, that's the power of diversity. And that kind of, you know, started this long process of trying to understand more deeply how nature works nature does not like monoculture nature likes diversity and there's good reasons why you know it works that way because there's when there's more diversity there's more jobs that get done you know this is the work of of people like David Tillman out of University of Minnesota he's an agroecologist looking you know deeply in on how how these systems work and and after you know 30 years of of looking at this question of diversity, yeah, it's very clear that the more diversity in an ecosystem, for example, the more plants, the more total productivity that system on average will provide. Why? Because more jobs get done. Each plant, especially functional groups of plants, right? Like grasses versus legumes versus forbs, broadleafs. They all do different jobs in, in nature. One may maybe is better at getting a little phosphorus out of the soil and making it plant available and, and on and on and on. It's sort of endless. We just start to, you know, look into this. But uh, yeah, that was probably one of the big moments where I started to realize that. And then, to, you know, to kind of go, well, why do we do monoculture grain farming on the prairie? Well, there are good reasons. We don't do it for no good reasons, you know, it's because it's made it simple and manageable and we can build equipment that, that can harvest it. But part of that understanding now is to realize that it, it does have consequences and that if we can add more diversity, maybe we can solve some of the problems we've created. For example, like flea beetles, like I mentioned, why do we have, you know, such huge flea beetle problems and it appears to be getting worse over time? Well, maybe it's because we have 23 million acres of monoculture canola every year across the prairies. And, and that's created just this perfect habitat for these little critter, critters called flea beetles, right? There's always been flea beetles around. We've just created an environment that's allowed them to be out of balance. They can really thrive in those, those cultures. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I would think if you were trying to look around in natural ecosystems, you'd be pretty hard pressed to find anywhere that would be a monoculture. Yeah, not that I'm aware of. And same yeah. with bare ground, right? You, you don't see yeah. bare ground a lot in nature. The odd disturbance here and there, but you know, Mother Nature comes in real quick and kind of takes care of that problem. Mm-hmm. It's called weeds. That's what weeds <laughs> do. They get the ground covered. They add diversity. You start to understand these things, right? It's like hey, weeds aren't the problem. It's it's how we 
modified landscapes over time. And so we can take that understanding and, and just do a better job. No one's saying, you know, quit doing agriculture, of course not, but can we do it better? And so that's sort of been the thing that I've spent my life, I guess, thinking about and trying to help farmers, you know, understand that and, and make their farms better. Imagine too, over the last 30 years that you've been on this path, that the amount of new information and new learning and just the elements that we now understand that people weren't even thinking about or had no clue about 30 years ago has completely changed. Oh just yeah. That. Even just the, the past few years and it, it's mm-hmm. just, uh, and you know, part of that's because of the ability to share information, like think about what goes on every day on Twitter or mm-hmm. Facebook or YouTube farmers talking to farmers discussing what they're doing and what they've learned and what works and what doesn't it's just it's wonderful and and, and overwhelming all at the <laughs> at the same time but yeah that's the, that's the great part is I, I think there there's no doubt that all this um call it what you want you know agroecology regenerative ag biological ag doesn't much matter what you what label you give it it's the fastest growing segment of of agriculture and not just here, you know, Manitoba, Saskatchewan's maybe a little bit of a hot spot for it. Mm-hmm. And I've had people, everyone from Gabe Brown to, I don't know, just sort of mention that, you know, there's a lot of good things going. And I think that's just because we have a great group of producers here in Manitoba, but it's a global thing, right? We're just trying to figure out to some of these problems, like, you know, for example, degraded soils over time because of how we've been farming them. Well, can we, can we make some changes to do a better job and try to till less and add diversity and keep the ground covered and, you know, the principles, the regenerative principles. What is your involvement and how did you get started with Ducks Unlimited Canada? So, you know, after university, like uh, I, I did a plant science degree at U of M. And then I got out of university and I suppose just my nature, I, I didn't find it particularly interesting to, to do the the conventional thing. That's, I guess, you know, that's just me. So I, you know, I wasn't quite sure what to do, but I, you know, I think I was very fortunate. I started working with conservation groups that, that were trying to look in on agriculture and, and, and go, Hey, you know, we need to maybe make some changes here and can we work with farmers and, so yeah, I worked with all the conservation groups, kind of, you know, just seasonal work when I got out of school and like Ducks Unlimited, Manitoba Habitat, Delta, Farming for Tomorrow, you know, conservation districts, probably pretty much worked with all of them on and off for a bunch of years and and then got on with Ducks uh, and worked full time for about 10 years. And then they went through a reorganization. But I was fortunate, you know, I just started working with them on contract. They were like, hey, do you want to do some of this stuff on contract, like the grazing club work? So I got into that maybe around 2005. So it's been a while. And then I also worked on other things like winter wheat and forage programs and, you know, all these sort of good stuff where sort of realized that these were good programs for agriculture, but they also were good for for wildlife, right? There is, you, you can kind of do it all, I think. So yeah, uh, that's how I kind of got started and, uh, and, you know, feel very 
fortunate to have uh, kind of gone down that path. The Grazing Club in the Brandon area started in 1999, which would be before your time. But do you know at that time what the problems were that producers were facing that jump-started that program? So I was sort of around Ducks Unlimited, kind of doing the, you know, the seasonal thing. I was sort of out more doing like wetland project stuff, fighting with beavers and, on, <laughs> you know, water control and that kind of thing, which uh, that, that that was interesting too. But I was sort of there listening to what was going on and, and talking to uh, some of the staff. And so it was like Ken Gross and Wayne Cowan way back kind of talking about, look, like, how do we, how do we kind of scale this thing up so that we get this good information out to farmers and, you know, adoption of these, these good management practices, you know, BMPs, I guess we call them now. And, and the idea was that this is Wayne Cowan and, you know, Wayne's still in Minnedosa there. Like he worked at the office. He was actually head agrologist for, for Ducks Unlimited Canada. And, and he came up with most of these ideas, like the forage program, winter wheat, grazing clubs and, you know, it's yeah had a huge influence. So yeah, that was kind of the problem was like, how do we transfer this information, this good information on grazing management, which has been around since long time, like in other parts of the world, like Australia, New Zealand, you know, this was kind of well-known stuff back in the fifties. It's just taken long time to, to sort of transfer this, this knowledge and technology. And so that was kind of the thinking is what, what if we got these sort of, you know, we called them a club, they never really were necessarily a club. In my mind, any producer who had livestock and forage was by default a member of the grazing club. <laughs> so, you know, it started kind of like there was like, you know, a Minidosa grazing club or a Sholate grazing. But it, anyone was welcome from anywhere to come to any any events. And so that's kind of how it all got started way back was just how can we get farmers together to talk about this good stuff. And really the power was to have farmers talking to farmers. There's nothing more powerful than that. You know, you start to get the network going and that's what, you know, if there's one thing that's worked well, I think with the grazing clubs is that we've built that kind of big network where you guys meet each other at these events and then they, they start to talk to each other. And and that there's nothing more powerful than that. Like, you know, on my email list for the grazing clubs now, I think I have over 700 wow. emails. So I send that out and that, you know, that gets out to a lot of people. Could it still be bigger and, and have, you know, more? Because, you know, probably the guys that really need to to get that email, they're, they're not. But, you know, we we do what we can. What would you say that the goals and objectives are of the program today and where that program has grown to be for its members, for the farmers in Manitoba? You know, my goal, my goal is just simply to, to provide the best events that, that we can to, to educate and increase understanding and ensure there's technology transfer. That's sort of the stuff that all, you know, everyone's sort of enamored with or our you know modern world and that's part of it too but uh to, in my mind you know it's more about the education and and sort of learning and then you apply that technology whether it's you know water systems or or electric fencing or you know all that you know good good tools you need to have that sort of fundamental understanding of things like you know how does grass grow how does grazing work um, as you think about it most farms are the same uh, more than they're 
different, right? Like if you if if you kind of like look at it big picture, it's sunlight, rain, soil, plants and animals, right? There's not much more. You can get, you know, more into the details of it, but every farm kind of has that more or less. And it's like how how do you, how do you use those those tools um, or that understanding to do a better job of say like you know capture sunlight right fundamentally agriculture is the capture of sunlight to grow grass or or grain right and that your your yield whether it's bushels or or bales is a function of sunlight period and you know, sure you need nitrogen and you need all that other stuff you need water right like last year was a good example like what was the limiting nutrient last year you know it wasn't nitrogen it water. was <laughs> it was h2o right yeah so but fundamentally it's sunlight right the only input that the planet gets all day every day is uh, sunlight there's no more nitrogen or carbon phosphorus today as there was a million years ago these are just mm-hmm. big cycles that's why we talk about carbon cycle, phosphorus cycle, nitrogen cycle is that everything just goes in big circles in nature. The only true input is, uh, and we kind of think of it as like diesel fuel or whatever, that's the input. But the truth of it is, uh, you know, diesel fuel is just ancient sunlight anyways, right? So it's all just fundamentally capturing sunlight. So it's education, right? And, uh, and so, you know, what, what, and, and what does that mean? Like, you know, we, we do workshops and tours. Those have been the big two, right? We do some nice winter workshops where we get speakers in and, and we do summer tours where we go and get out there in the pasture and, and they can be anything from like summer grazing tours, but you know, we've done winter stuff, bale grazing and all that bunch pile grazing. So it can be any time of the year. And then of course, now we're doing, you know, zoom calls, doing that, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff because, you know, pandemic and that's become super interesting. So we've, you know, got a bunch of of those on the internet as well. Uh, Yeah, like, you know, we've got this like great network of producers that now work together to to make their farms better. So I think that's been the the influence of the grazing clubs is just to get producers together to learn. We've kind of covered some of the topics that you discuss. Are there upcoming events that you know of off the top of your head that are maybe happening like this summer or kind of when your winter workshops usually are that you could yeah. share with us? Summer tours, it's always a challenge. I'm trying to figure out what we'll, what we'll do. And some of them are going to be like repeats. And, and some people, I think, say to me, it's like, well, you're just being lazy. We're just going back to the same farm. But it's good to go back to the same farm and to sort of see how things have evolved, right? Like we've been doing a, a tour at Brian Harper's farm west of Brandon probably seven, eight years now. And so we'll probably be back out there again this summer, but you know where Brian's at today versus what he's what he did back like when we got started two thousand like fourteen or thirteen something like that. Yeah, lots of change because you know just because more experience, more understanding, more knowledge, and and then you know kind of influenced by the weather. How do you be adaptive when it's dry, wet, mm-hmm. cold? All these things, right? How can you be adaptive based on your understanding? And it's always good to have a plan, but typically your plan never totally works out. You have to replan, right? That's the adaptive part. We'll have a number of tours throughout the summer and and into the fall. And we do a a kind of a joint summer tour with the, uh, the Forage Council. And 
probably go back out to Ryan Boyd's. You see what Ryan Boyd's up to. You know, he's become one of the better grass managers. The cool part is there's so many that to choose from now, producers that are doing good things. So we'll we'll get out there and, and look at cows and grass and and then this fall, you know, there's the regenerative conference, which has become a big deal in Manitoba. And I think Fred Prevenza is coming out, Dr. Fred Prevenza. So we'll probably get him to stay an extra day. Because, you know, he comes all the way from Montana to do a one-hour presentation at a conference. So that, this has been one of the things I've done is when there's conferences and, and, and good speakers are up is, uh, hey, let's take advantage of them and have them stay an extra day and, and really dig into these things. You can have a nice conversation for a full day. Like one of the ones I remember best is uh, Dr. David Johnson out of University of New Mexico done some really cool work on compost, trying to build um, highly fungal compost. The idea being that our soils are now highly bacterial dominated just because of how we've managed them. And we've been hard on the fungal component of the soil. You can think of fungi as like the internet of the soil. They got these webby hyphae that, that explore through the soil, doing all this good work to interact with the plants, to provide nutrient water. And when they're not there, you have suboptimal system. Can you get them back in by growing these highly fungal composts? So he was out, spoke at the conference. He, we spent a, another day at MBFI. We were at the learning center. And I can remember the morning, you know, he did his presentation thing, you know, his PowerPoint. We had a nice lunch. Everyone's just talking. The entire afternoon till like five o'clock. And he had another presentation, right? PowerPoint ready to go. And he never even got to it because we just spent the whole afternoon just talking right questions yeah. didn't you i thought that that was just wonderful right you know that guys were just they were thinking and then they just it was just one question after another discussion and and since then you know we've had a lot of producers start to experiment with build trying to build these uh highly fungal composts and you build them by trying to keep whatever you're using as compost you need to keep it static as soon as you start to turn it and disturb it you disturb the the fungal component as it's trying to grow and build the hyphae. So you want to just leave it undisturbed, but figure out how to get air into it, all that. So that's just an example. But, you know, like this winter, for example, we had a number of speakers just over Zoom, of course. We had Jim Garish, you know, Dr. Jim Garish talking about grazing management, what, he, what he's learned over 40 plus years of grazing. You can imagine, you know, how powerful is that? We had Dr. Jonathan Roundtree out of Michigan talking about, you know, grazing management, some of the research he's done to show you can, you know, you can sequester a lot of carbon back into soil through good grazing management through this sort of adaptive multi-paddock amp grazing kind of idea. And then, you know, in the past, we've had people like Dr. Christine Jones up and a couple of times and talking about all this soil health stuff. Last winter, I did a six-part series with Dr. Fred Provenza, and it's all on YouTube there on the Manitoba Grazing Club's YouTube channel, so check that out. We've done quite a bit, and but yeah, this summer, we'll, uh, we'll get out there and do some producer, producer tours and do some good stuff with MPFI. And the information for those uh, will go out in the emails, I would assume, as to when those yep. dates and locations are. Is there yep, anywhere for sure. else for people who aren't receiving the emails on that email list that they could find that information? 
Does no, we don't. We don't okay. have like a huge web presence. Best would be just to to call me, email, okay. text. Yeah, it's probably the best. Or talk to ducks. You know, anyone at ducks can kind of get you connected in. You know, we've got to give Ducks Unlimited huge credit for being, mm-hmm. you know, just consistently supporting this idea of working with producers to improve their grazing management and, and that it does have wildlife benefits. So yeah, they continue to be the only supporter of this. And and now we're into, you know, since 99. So yeah, over 20 years. That's mm-hmm. uh, that's very impressive. You touched a little bit there on the YouTube channel. We will put the yep. link to the YouTube channel and the website um, into the show notes for the episode today. What other information can producers find on that YouTube channel if they were looking for some things today? Oh boy, yeah, there's a pile. Like, What else have we done? We did some webinars with a lab out of Red Deer Future Analytics Lab. They're doing some super cool work with sap and soil testing. Sap testing is where you actually extract the sap out of the plant. So it's slightly different than like tissue testing. It gives you sort of real-time information that you can use to perhaps do some like foliar stuff and all that's kind of emerging. That's cool. Did a nice kind of grazing principles webinar with Blaine Jurdis. He's a certified holistic educator, farmed kind of down in Southeast Saskatchewan, west of Redverse. And we did one with Ray Archuleta. That's probably been our biggest, you know, Ray's kind of the uh, the profit of soil health. <laughs> so we've had good uptake on that one. Did that this winter. Darren Qualman's uh, works with NFU and farm boy from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and talking about nitrogen. And uh, so there, there is lots of good stuff. And, uh, and then lots of, you know, producers are able to sit in. A lot of these webinars we do live. So producers can be there and ask questions and all that's recorded and put on on YouTube. And, and then, of course, I've mentioned Garish and Roundtree and Provenza. Uh, and then there's a few little things I've done just with my iPhone out in the field interviewing farmers, talking about things like, oh, I had David Ediger from uh, southeast of Brandon there. At, uh, anyways, uh, he built himself an interceder and uh, just sort of interviewing him and going over this cool interceder that he uses to intercede between sunflowers mainly is what he's using it for but you could use it between corn or whatever mm-hmm. so yeah there's we're starting to get a little bit of stuff but yeah if you probably watched it all now there's maybe like 20 hours worth of good stuff there's so much more that's available now just with it's internet endless. and social media so it's fantastic that you're able to take that information and put it up there for people to go and find Is there anything else about the grazing clubs that you'd like to share with our listeners today? That gives you a pretty good sense. Just come on out. Yeah. Attend an event. And and, it's been so interesting to see even through pandemic and and everything and all the challenges. uh, People still come out to events and we still have nice gatherings. And so, yeah, this, this summer will be great to kind of get back to sort of normal and have some nice events and, and get together. And, and, you know, we've had people come from a long ways. We had people come up from the States because they've heard about it and they want to attend a particular event. So it's, that's wonderful too. That's such a great program that Ducks has that you're able to be a part of. 
what is your, the link for you between the ducks grazing club and understanding egg? Well, yeah, it all gets kind of just fuzzy and it's more or less, <laughs> it becomes all the same thing, right? It's sort of, you know, it's, that's the best part. I think for me anyways, is how my brain works is that I almost don't distinguish one from the other. It's all just kind of the work I do. If you think about it, it's all kind of the same thing, just helping mm-hmm. farmers to have deeper understanding. And that's why I, li- I like the name Understanding Ag is uh, the, uh, the idea is that any, anyone who's been involved with extension, it's the challenge is to like, how do you make change? And, you know, you can tell somebody to just do this thing because it's the right thing to do. And that doesn't typically work real well. But if you give the, a person the understanding over time, then yeah, they'll change. And it's not just agriculture, it's every, everything, right? So it's, it becomes an educational thing. And so I suppose the link is just whether it's grazing clubs or, or understanding ag or the General Mills regenerative ag project or other things I'm doing, it's, it's all become sort of like an educational project in, in that sense. And, and uh, yeah, I remember reading something about, you know, if you're thinking about a problem and how to solve it, chances are if education isn't part of the solution, you're probably not asking the right question. So that's, I guess, the, how I think about it any, anyhow. From day to day, it all kind of feels the same. A lot of times it's the same producers, right? Like I, yeah. a lot of the, like say the General Mills producers now are coming out to grazing club events or, or they were coming out to grazing club events. But like your husband, Brett, is a good example. <laughs> he was coming out to grazing club stuff before he got involved in the project with General Mills. So it, yes. it all gets, yeah, kind of. And that's a perfect segue into the General Mills program. In partnership with Understanding Egg, General Mills has funded and administered three pilot programs across Canada and the United States. General Mills is committing to regenerative agriculture practices on 1 million acres of farmland by the year 2030. Their definition of regenerative agriculture is any method of farming that protects and intentionally enhances natural resources and farming communities. General Mills' core principles of regenerative agriculture include minimizing soil disturbance, maximizing crop diversity, keeping the soil covered, maintaining a living root year-round, and integrating livestock with cropland. Can you tell me more about the General Mills pilot program and what it looks like in Canada? Yeah, just thinking about like the definition of regenerative ag, we've, this has been kind of a bit of a struggle is to, well, you know, people can get bogged down in definitions and just mm-hmm. sort of not really get much past that. And and we just want to get to work and, and uh, you know, do this. So I, I, the way I think about regenerative ag, and this is something that the guys at Understanding Ag came up with was if, if you think about it real simply, it's just farming and ranching in synchrony with nature. And then, of course, the regenerative part is that, yeah, you know, maybe you have a degraded soil or or whatever it happens to be the thing that you want to to rebuild or repair. Then that, you know, you accomplish that through this, you know, working with nature. So my my simple definition is, uh, you know, regenerative ag. Again, whatever you want to call it. Some people aren't necessarily interested in that term, and that's fine. 
but I sort of think about it like the rules of nature. Like you, you don't get to just decide what rules to follow. Or if you do decide to not follow the rules, it's sort of like hockey, right? There's rules and there's sideboards and the game gets played within the, the arena. And uh, if you trip a player, you know, you've broken a rule, you, you go to the, you know, the penalty box for two minutes and, it's kind of the same in, in agriculture. If you, if you break the rules repeatedly over time, these sort of rules of nature, and that's basically what the regenerative principles are, is just looking in at nature and going, hey, this is how it seems to work. And we're not making stuff up. This is just basically ecology and smart people over time have sort of put this all together. Yeah, I, I think about it almost like the way we do ag right now, because we've been kind of oriented to focus more on chemistry and 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 yield just grow grow and it's not like we don't have to grow of course we do but that may have consequences it's like um you know you decide you wake up in the morning and decide you don't believe in gravity right and you jump off a tall building does does the rule does gravity care (laughs) the rule does and there's consequences right and it may not be in a day or a and that, you know, that's a pretty extreme example, but yeah, you know, I think that's sort of what's happened is we've, we've avoided and, and, you know, humans, we don't like to have rules. We don't feel, we don't, we don't want to feel like we're kind of bound by rules, mm-hmm. but there are maybe the, sort of the sideboards of nature that kind of define how we can do agriculture. And if we can work better with those, then we'll probably do a better job of growing food, making some money, looking after, you know, being a good steward of that of that land and uh, and the biodiversity that lives in it, right? You look at some of the research coming out, loss of biodiversity, like for insects or birds, it's pretty extreme. Like the latest bird study was showing that we've lost, I don't know, two or 3 billion birds in the total population in North America. And that sort of like represents like a loss of 30% oh, plus wow. or minus, you know, insects, maybe 75%, right? So, you know, these things we, and, 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 you know, what, what is causing that? Well, at least in part, it's how we've modified landscapes and, and one of the largest modifiers of landscapes is of course, uh, agriculture. So yeah, when did, when did this project get started? So, you know, saying all that, that's sort of like General Mills was looking in on agriculture and going, you know, wow, there's some things that maybe we need to help change because, you know, they're huge buyers of oats and, wheat and barley and corn and and they want to continue to do their business and they're looking in going boy this may not continue to work real well can we be a part of sort of maybe solving some of these big problems and so you got to give them credit for that they sort of stepped in and go this regenerative thing looks to have some potential can we help to kind of get this going work with some producers and implement these ideas and and then you know try to measure the the change over time so we started with 45 farms plus some conventional farms that we used as uh, comparison farms that started in 2019 we uh, did benchmarking soil uh, water infiltration penetrometer you know compaction that kind of so it wasn't just understanding ag part of this project it was also organizations hired to look at insects and birds and we also looked at profitability. And so we were trying to look at the whole, right? And, and see if we could measure 
change. So now we're three full years of management in. So this is kind of like year four. We're coming back this spring to re-soil test. So we're looking at carbon all the way down to a meter. So we're looking at deep carbon. See if we can sequester more carbon as we try to keep something green growing longer, uh, minimize soil disturbance. Uh, we're looking at the biology, the life in the soil, right? You know, if there's one thing that I think, you know, it's been the one of the big messages has been that soil is alive. It's not just this inert substance where the plant is kind of held up in the soil. It's, it's like this super organism that is doing huge amount of hard work to make nutrient water available for the plant and, and to understand that the whole thing is interconnected. There is the plant and the soil are one. And you can't have soil without a plant. You can't have a plant without soil. This thing is, and it's, that's how it's functioned for 400 million years. It's only been in the last, say, 50 years or so of modern ag where we've kind of done this experiment and we'll see how it works out. But yeah, so we're looking at all these, uh, all these parameters and measuring them. And yeah, now we're coming back and hopefully we're going to measure a, a little bit of a change. Three years isn't a huge time frame, but it's a start and uh, measure change in soil biology and infiltration. Like infiltration is an interesting story. Like you, I was at a conference at the U of M. They have the agronomist conference once a year there just before Christmas at the U of M and was there a few years ago. And, and uh, there was a fellow from Manitoba Ag talking about water infiltration on Manitoba cropland and that the average infiltration rate is less than one inch an hour on cropland now and he sort of stated it like a fact no big deal but what he didn't state was how catastrophic that is is that same piece of land prior to agriculture and you know breaking the soil and working up the prairie probably had an infiltration rate of 10 to 20 inches an hour so a big part of the, you know the issues we have with too wet too dry flooding loss of infrastructure when you get a heavy rain is that we have you know poor infiltration on these soils now because the lack of carbon in those the, the soil carbon sponge has been reduced the infiltration rate the aggregation is poor because of it and and all that relates back to how we've managed that land and and there's only one way to fix soil like if we're trying to you know regenerate soil and that's to keep a green plant growing longer to pump you know to convert sunlight photosynthesis right sunlight a green green leaf in the presence of sunlight plus CO2 and water equals these liquid carbon compounds that get pumped down through the plant, out the root, into the soil to feed the soil biology, to rebuild the that's how soil gains organic matter is that that's sort of the main mechanism. So we're we're doing all that. And uh yeah, working with these farmers has just been such a wonderful experience and you know and a, and an honor to be a, a small part of that and to, to see, you know, these farms change and grow and, and to see their, their thinking change, right. You know, that's, and, and how that, that, you know, that change in thinking has given, given the, you know, the, the farmers uh, like a freedom. They don't, they feel less trapped in when it comes to solutions. There's like, Hey, maybe now there's some, there's some extra ways I can go about, changing my farm to to look at becoming more profitable and 
and increasing infiltration and make my farm more resilient in the face of climate change. And so yeah, the, the fellow I work with is Blaine Jurdis. So Blaine and I up here in Canada, working through Understanding Egg, um, we're um, coaching and, and supporting. And I think in a lot of cases now, the producers, they're, uh, man, they're so far ahead. Uh, it's hard to keep up and that we're not really, we don't really coach. We're, we're just like cheerleaders now because, <laughs> you know, because change, change is hard. You, you, you need that kind of support. And I think that's, and now we've built that community. Like I talked about that with the grazing clubs, but with this general mills thing, same, same idea. These guys have formed their own networks and they, these guys just know each other now and their phone numbers and they're talking and they're thinking and they're going, Hey, what if I did this? And so that's been wonderful just to, just to, you know, it's almost like it's been a jump start for their thinking as well. And uh, once that happens, man, then you, you can hardly sleep at night because you're just always thinking about this stuff and what else to say. Some of the, some of the other groups like um, Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, he's the fellow looking at insects just showing some interesting changes as uh, as we sort of increase soil health. It all kind of comes from the ground up, right? So if you think about the birds and insect part of it, we're noticing as the soil health increases, so we've got more life in that soil, more bacteria, more fungi, more worms, more protozoa, all, you know, all of that is attracting more insects. The insects attract more birds. So we're noticing as... Uh, we compare these regenerative fields as they're improving to conventional fields or even wildlife management areas that these regenerative fields have more birds and, you know, more total birds, but also more species of birds, more diversity. So that that's pretty interesting. And we'll see, we'll see what the, the data looks like over time, but it, it looks kind of promising that that's sort of how it all works, right? From the, from the soil up as, and that kind of, and you know, it makes sense when you stop to think about it as we increase the life in the soil, it, the insects are cued into that. And then the, the birds cue into that. And we're seeing it in other, like in the grazing clubs, we've also seen projects where uh, as grazing management improves, uh, so does the, uh, the number and the, and the diversity of birds. Is there additional support that producers receive who are involved in the program? Blaine Jurdis and myself, you know, doing that, that coaching. And so there was no funding directly to the farmers as far as, you know, money, but uh, it was, it was support that to help farmers just try to make better decisions. So we spent the last three years, you know, we would, we would sit down at the kitchen table or now over zoom a lot, of course, recently. And it's like, Hey, what's your plan for this coming year? Right. And so there was always that sort of process of thinking through and but we were always very careful like to not sort of tell producers what to do is that they needed to kind of think it through themselves. We were there to sort of help and, and have some ideas, of course. So we go through that whole sort of thinking process of how do we implement some of these regenerative principles, right? And everything from trying to reduce tillage to adding diversity, integrating livestock. If you think about the uh, historic ecological context of the landscape we work in, the prairies, it used to be a great big pasture with millions of grazing animals roaming across it for the past 10,000 years since the last ice age. And, 
and a lot of fields now uh, haven't seen a animal for a long time. So integrating livestock back out onto cropland, huge benefits. Adding in cover crops and grazing and all that, you know, good good thinking. And so that's that's basically the support that we provided. And then the idea was we picked a single field from each farm. That was the project field. That's the one we're measuring with all this stuff I've been talking about, the soil and the birds and the bugs. And so, you know, start on that project field, spend a few years figuring out how to implement these ideas, get comfortable. Like a big part of it is, isn't so much the ideas, but the, the humans involved, right. in getting everybody up to speed. And, and then once you're kind of comfortable with it, then scale it up. And uh, that's what we're starting to see is all this, uh, what started on the project field is now leaked out to most of the farm, which of course we were hoping that would happen. Yeah. So that's, ba- that's basically our, our involvement. You're coming back this year to do all of the sampling um, and that testing again. And then after this, is there more projects right. coming or? Yeah, it's um, hard to give. That top secret? Of No. No, but you know, it's like, it's evolving. I guess the, it, it's hard to say, cause it's, it's just not a, yeah, we don't know exactly. And, and that's, you know, what, if you think about it, when you do anything big, like, like one thing I didn't mention is this project, you know, the 45 farms, all the work that's being done, understanding ag, Ekdysis doing the bug work with Jonathan Lundgren, the other, there's a group called uh, uh, Resource ecological solutions they used to be called aes applied eco they were sold to res and they're doing the carbon and the bird work so you know a huge undertaking general mills as having you know spent a quite a bit of, of money to to fund this this is the largest agroecological project in north america and it's going to get scaled up. Like one of the ways it's sort of evolving is Jonathan Lundgren is continuing on and he's got a thousand farms initiative. So anybody who's interested to be a part of it, just go to, to just Google thousand farms initiative or Dr. Jonathan Lundgren or Ecdysis. And so that's probably the next sort of evolution of it. Not necessarily, you know, tied to this project, but other things that are happening, sort of like the evolution, I think of is uh, General Mills is looking in and thinking about their own carbon footprint as an organization and then realize that the majority of their carbon footprint is the the carbon associated with... So when they buy, say, like a a bushel of oats from a farmer, they have to take on the full carbon footprint of, of growing that bushel of oats if they're doing, you know, proper accounting for carbon. So they're going, wait a minute, can we work with farmers now, again, through these regenerative ideas to help them reduce their carbon footprint, maybe sequester some carbon back into the soil through, you know, growing green plants longer and, and these regenerative ideas. And also maybe, you know, like, for example, if you're reducing tillage, you're probably reducing diesel fuel. If you're reducing the nitrogen you use while you're reducing the natural gas required to make that nitrogen and then the consequences of applying that nitrogen you know which so you get you get more not necessarily co2 but other greenhouse gases so they're looking in going hey can we work with producers so we started a little pilot project this year and a lot of them are 
are, are in the General Mills, the, the Regen project. And this project is going to look at, okay, how can we implement these principles, uh, sequester more carbon and reduce emissions and overall pay the farmer for that reduction in tons of CO2 equivalent. So I, I think of that as kind of the, evo the evolution of of the project and uh yeah we've got 40 40 41 farms in that spread out across manitoba and saskatchewan so that's i think yeah that's i think going to be part of the evolution and like i say this is the pilot project so next year it may be depending on how this goes may maybe more broadly available to other producers and all this talk of course about carbon sequestration and and how to reward farmers for their good management and sequestering some carbon back into these soils. It's a big question, how to measure it, how to pay for it. So we're trying to be a part of that, trying to figure out a, a program that will be good for farmers. That seems like such a, a big topic yeah. right now. It's everybody's talking about it. How's it going to work? What's it going to do for producers? Yeah. So right now, carbon's like the proxy for all these other good things too, like water quality and biodiversity. Those others are maybe some of the other. It's not just carbon, sort of like ecosystem services. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's another piece of the sort of the evolution. If producers can do a good job of of growing food, but also provide water quality and and a home for wildlife, they should also be rewarded for that. So that's probably the the next step too but yeah we're starting with carbon and see how that goes what has surprised you the most over the course of the program so far <laughs> yeah right i saw that question that's yeah that's a tough one but you know what i maybe not so much surprised as unexpected maybe it's just to have been in contact with these farms now for three four years and to watch the evolution of the farm and the people and their thinking and and their growth and of course you know we were expecting yeah the farm's going to change right that was sort of we were all focused on, okay we're going to change the farm we're going to do all these things and but maybe what's changed the most isn't the farm but the the people so i see this like really cool change in in attitudes and and you know i think in mental health and and their relationship with their family and all these sort of good things. And like I had one comment, I remember getting a text on Easter Sunday of the, of the first year of pandemic. Right. So that was sort of April of 2020. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he'd been talking to the fellow who texts me is from Saskatchewan. He'd been talking to his neighbor and the neighbor's pretty worked up. He's 5,000 acre grain farm and really not sure what to do and struggling. And the bank is, on him and just has all this you know stress and and so you know this fellow's trying to help him out a little bit and give him some ideas and so he tells me all this by text and then he he goes in the next text something like but mike i'm i'm just sitting here enjoying my farm thinking about all the possibilities so, you know totally different mindset of yeah. those two farmers right one is feeling kind of trapped, doesn't know what to do, hard, hard to find, you know, kind of has a sense that there's some problems, can't, but has no clue how to go about finding a solution where this other fellow, and it's not like I'm saying that his farm's perfect by any means, but he had 
he had this sort of greater understanding and and he, he could see possibilities that the, and it's just through deeper understanding and education so i think that would maybe be the most unexpected and and and, and how do you measure that like i was thinking like okay that should be part of what we're measuring but very very difficult to measure that but i've seen it you know you, you and these are the stories we're trying to capture too and as part of it uh, all this data is is to you know the the change in thinking and yeah and, and just feeling like there's more possibility it's amazing what what a change you can have to that mindset when you have the extra tools right that support yep. and the mentorship and the tools in your toolbox and then all of that together helps you be more resilient and more optimistic and that's what a great outcome that is from that project. Yeah, like I, I think I saw it during the pandemic, you know, everyone was a little bit anxious and stressed mm-hmm. out and just unsure, you know, all this uncertainty. And, and I think the guys that have sort of embraced this regenerative thinking, they did better. They were more resilient in the, in the sort of the face of all of that. That was pretty cool to be, a, yeah, just to see that and to grow on, you know, like if you think about it, one of the real goals is just to make that farm more resilient because there's, there's always going to be things like last year dry next year it could be whatever prices uh, who knows you, you don't know so like what can you do is just try to make your farm resilient and part of that is your your thinking and your understanding we've talked lots too about that networking component and being able to yeah, have farmers huge. talking and and i think that's a huge part of that as well where would you like to see agriculture go in the future? <laughs> well, I kind of mentioned that at the beginning. So I just, I just think that we're at a point where we have brought it all together. If you think about it from like, say a soil perspective is that we're now understanding all the pieces of that system. It's not just about the chemistry of the soil. It's not just about the structure of the soil. Right. If you think about it, kind of the history of agriculture, there was the plow, you know, that was sort of the big change and where we were dealing with just the structure of the soil, right? We needed to work the soil to grow the crop. And then it was like, hey, we got chemistry. We can add in inputs and, and it has this positive effect on yield. And, but there are also unintended consequences. And, and the, so to me, the third step is now bringing in the biology. So now we kind of put it all together. So we're, we're just trying to tell a more complete story. That, that I think is kind of the future is to, to take what we know and to just to build, to build on that. And to understand that soil is alive. It's just like one message, that would be it. And if, and if there's been one other kind of cool story, if I could tell, and then I think that should be it, is uh, part of our, um, our soil testing benchmarking and we're going to re- redo it this year i think just to kind of you know confirm our results is we we did something called total nutrient extraction where we looked at the total pool of mineral down to about a foot in that soil but it's the total it's sort of like knowing how much money do you have in the bank right it's it's everything so it, but of course not all of it is available in any particular moment in time right so yeah most of that nitrogen or phosphorus or carbon or or what you know potassium is locked up and not necessarily plant available at any particular moment in time like for example on average over the 45 farms the amount of nitrogen per acre one foot deep is around nine thousand pounds nine thousand pounds of nitrogen and you're like well how is that even possible 
that makes no sense, right? Like when I ask that question, most guys are, will say, like when I ask like how, how much nitrogen do you think is in that? And they think conventionally, right? It's like a typical soil test, testing for nitrate and not much else. And, and you say, well, hundred pounds, 50 pounds, so, you know, those are kind of typical answers. And they're like, you know, 9,000? No, Mike, that, that doesn't make sense. Well, it does when you start to think about it. Each 1% of organic matter has a thousand pounds of N. 10,000 pounds of carbon. So you have a 5% organic matter soil, that's 5,000 pounds of nitrogen just tied up in the organic matter, in the humus of the soil. And is that available? Of course not. But can a little bit be made available every day through the growing season by a healthy soil where the biology is doing its job? Like you just have to ask the question, like who fertilized the prairies before we got here, right? It's a silly question, nobody. It was the system, you know, it was the yeah. ecosystem functioning and, and cycling nutrients. So potassium, 11,000 pounds. Go down the list. We did all the macros and, and all the micros. We never had a single zero. There are no deficiencies in any of our soils. The, the question becomes like, is it available? And of course, the answer is no, it's mm -hmm. not available. And it becomes less available as the biology in that soil is is less able to do the work because of how we've been farming these soils and that system becomes suboptimal and so that's been a big big story that we've been telling and i think that that's a that's a super cool story it allows you to kind of go through the whole process of understanding yeah there's this huge pool of nutrients the biology makes it available the plant and the soil interact and and communicate this is how it's worked for 400 million years and we we've kind of found a way to maybe break that a little bit through adding inputs so the plant gets lazy and goes, hey, I don't need to work to mm -hmm. provide carbon back into the soil to feed the biology, to make the, you know, so the plant provides carbon energy to the biology. And in return, the biology says, okay, I'll give you a little bit of phosphorus. So it's a nice arrangement, right? And this is, like I say, this is how it's, it's worked for a long time. So that, you know, that would have never, we wouldn't have that story to tell if it wasn't for this project. So that's been, uh, that's been a good one. Will there be opportunities in the future for more producers to become involved in the General Mills program if they're interested? Or is that kind of a wait and see as far as how things go after the pilot programs ended? Yeah, I would say, you know, that this initial regenerative ag project with the 45 farms that, that you know, is what it is. It's not not going to grow but like i say it will evolve and maybe the uh opportunity is to be a part of this sort of ecosystem services project and and maybe something i didn't mention that's sort of interesting with this project if you think about like most people when they think of carbon and farming it's just this carbon credit thing where like a big emitter will will buy carbon credits from say a farmer and then they just keep emitting and no real change happens, right? You don't, you're not actually changing things in the real world. You're just sort of playing this game of buying and selling carbon credits. And the farmer makes a few pennies and some stockbroker makes a billion dollars, right? It's not a good deal for anybody. Uh, this is different in that we're really trying to change how we do ag, measure the reduction in emissions or the increase in carbon sequestration, pay the farmer for that. So there's the incentive to improve your management to do, you know, more of that sequester carbon or reduce emissions and then get rewarded for it. And what can also happen, this is sort of an idea that's getting tossed around is to bundle some of that 
like say in five-year bundles based on what that farmer is going to do to improve his management, like say reduce tillage, you can estimate what, what is going to be the, the total amount of CO2 equivalent reduction and pay them for that upfront. So instead of a few dollars every year, you get this bundle of money upfront to make a big change. Like say, say the thing you really need is a better no-till cedar. Well, here now you have a little bit of money to help kind of fund that change. That'd be a game changer, I think. I think, a lot yeah, of that's a, yeah, I think it's a, a pretty, pretty, it's an interesting idea just now how to figure out exactly how to, how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some details. So what, you know, we're really trying to make the change. It's called scope three is what, you know, uh, the idea being that General Mills and their, their total scope three emissions, they're trying to reduce. And most of those emissions are, like I say, from the farmer growing that bushel of oats or wheat? And can we find a way to, to reduce that emissions and reward him for that, reward the farmer for that good work? Is there a website that listeners can go to to find out more information about the General Mills program and Understanding Ag and that involvement there? Understanding Ag does have a nice uh, website and there's some good webinars that we've done and and some uh, some articles and all that. So I would check out understandingag.com. I'd also maybe look into, uh, this is a new project that Understanding Ag's undertaking called Regenify. And if you go to regenify.com, um, it's, it's a new idea where farmers would become sort of like certified regenerative. And based on that, and, you know, and it's not like a one-time, it would be different than say organic where you're either organic or you're not. This is sort of a journey where you, you could maybe start with like, Hey, I'm, I'm adding cover crops to my farm. And then, you know, a few years later you reduce tillage. And, and as you sort of go down that regenerative path, you would be rewarded for that with increased premiums. And then the next step would be to go, Hey, these regenerative farms are actually growing higher quality food and we're measuring it. Like there was a paper released this winter by Montgomery and, and Archuleta and, and Paul Brown, Gabe Brown's son, where they, they paired up regenerative farms versus conventional farms and looked at the food they're growing, whether it was everything from meat to grains to fruit, vegetables, they paired up is small. Like I think there was nine farms. So it was a small sample size, nine paired farms, but they paired them up as close as they could to each other. So similar soil type, similar weather, rainfall, even down to the variety of, the, of whatever they were growing was the same to kind of remove as much variability as possible. And they're showing some interesting results where the, yeah, the quality of the food growing on these regenerative farms, and it's not just mineral density, it's nutrient density where they're measuring these, these secondary phytochemicals that you may only need in like parts per trillion but if you don't get over time, may have consequences for your health. So they're now making the connection between, hey, the good things you do on your farm are actually affecting the quality of the food you're growing and you should be rewarded for that as well. So that's coming. It's just, just starting and mm -hmm. hasn't come to Canada yet. But I think that's sort of the next step is in the evolution of all this is, you know, if you think about it, if the goal of farming isn't to grow good food, then what, what is the goal? I, you know, I, We've maybe lost our way a little bit that 
in, in that sense. And, and why shouldn't we measure the quality of the food we're growing? And the technology is now becoming available to do this easily and cost-effectively. So that's that's a big deal. That that could be another. If you combine, say, what I was talking about with with all the like scope three carbon stuff, reducing emissions, being rewarded for that, plus also being rewarded for growing better food, plus keeping your costs down, making your farm more resilient. You can kind of see how it, it all kind of fits together in a nice uh, system, right? Where all the parts are working together. I think too, for farmers who, like you said, have to maybe upgrade equipment or make some of those changes, knowing that there's going to be funding yeah. available and support for them to help cover some of those costs up front, I think makes a huge difference in whether or not they can financially afford to do that or right. even justify in their mind making that change. Because, you know, it's part of that that big leap to make change. And if you're putting out a major expenditure to make mm-hmm. that, that's risky. So if you can get some help to do it. So there's all these things happening. We, we really haven't touched on all the other things that are kind of going on. Like there's money be available through the conservation districts, um, through this on-farm climate action fund through the feds, right? There's going to be money available for doing things like cover crop or reducing nitrogen use or improving grazing management. There's that coming work being done by uh, Alice. There's other, you know, so there's just all these uh, sources of funding available, I think, for for farmers, um, the conservation trust money through Manitoba Habitat. So all these are potential sources. So if yeah, if you're a farm and you're thinking of making some change, you don't have to do it all on your own. There's, there are possibilities to to get some help financially, and then come out to some you know events like the grazing club events to, to learn how to do it. I feel like we've kind of only just touched on um, a lot of different topics today. If listeners want to get in contact with you to find out more information about either of the programs or about the knowledge that you have and the ideas that you have, what is the best way for them to contact you? Yeah. Email or, or phone and yeah, glad to help. And I also do some consulting with, with farms as well. So glad to try to help out a little bit as well. And we'll um, add your phone number and your email into the show notes. And then that way people can get a hold of it if they're looking yep. for it. I think that's kind of all that I had prepared. Is there anything else that you wanted to share or Anything that you wanted to reiterate? Well, I would just say that, uh, well, first, thank you. This has been wonderful. And, but yeah, if you're, if you're farming and you're thinking about making a, a change, yeah, just do it. But be smart. You know, start small, figure it out, scale it up. Like that's what we've, I think, figured out over the past few years is there's a process here. You're not doing any, anyone any favor trying to change everything in a day and then go broke in the process. You have this wonderful line I heard from Walter Yenny from Australia. It's, um, it's hard to be green if you're in the red, right? If the bank is on you, it's hard to do the right thing. So yeah. you just have to be careful. And uh, there is a process. And, and we're sort of learning. Everyone's learning how to, what, that, what that process looks like as you change and grow but yeah don't be afraid of of change you just need to to be smart thank you very much it's been been great
Well, thank you. It. I appreciate all of the time that you've given us today. It has been really a pleasure to chat with you and you have so much knowledge to share with people. So thank you so much for joining me and I hope you have a fantastic summer. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without the funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and the Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, Ducks Unlimited Canada, and the Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the on-farm projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at MB Beef and Forage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project supporter, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. We've got lots to share.